You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Welcome to episode five of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. In previous episodes of the podcast, you'll have heard conversations with practitioners and participants in collaborative process. For today's discussion, we're going in a different direction, focusing entirely on the field of deliberative democracy. And I'm joined by Dr. Lynn Carson. Carson is the research director at the New Democracy Foundation in Sydney, Australia, an organization that seeks to further the understanding and the practice of deliberative democratic process. Before taking this role at New Democracy, Carson was a professor in applied politics at the University of Sydney Business School, where she focused on deliberative inclusionary process. She is an author and has written widely on the subject of citizen participation. Our discussion today covers a number of the key aspects of deliberative democracy, and we spend a bit of time comparing and contrasting some of the nuanced differences between collaboration and public deliberation. I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion with Carson today, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Hello, Carson, are you there? Hey, Scott. Hey, how are you? Oh, good. It's winter down under, but otherwise it's good. Oh, you know, by winter, it's what? How cold down there today? (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed to say. So it's about 19 degrees Celsius, and I think it's cool, but (sighs) Canadians probably think that's balmy. I don't know. Well, I'm joining from uh, Alberta and it's, I think, about 16 degrees here. So it's cooler here and it's (laughs) almost the longest day of the year. Oh, that's so funny. So you and I had a chance to talk previously just to to get to know one another, but I'm I'm curious for people listening how you would introduce yourself to someone who who hasn't met you. What's What's your elevator pitch, so to speak? Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, the antithesis of deliberative democracy is an elevator pitch. (laughs) (laughs) I often think about it as being the equivalent of slow food. It's slow democracy. You know, it's not something that you can pitch in an elevator, the notion of deliberative democracy. But I tend to start by saying what it's not. And people that I'm talking to are usually very familiar with the status quo with representative government. And I say, actually, I'm I'm talking about something completely different. Right. And I'm not talking about an opinion poll. I'm not talking about a focus group. I'm not talking about any of the stuff that you're probably familiar with. The closest we'd probably come to it would be a criminal jury. And even that is so different from what I'm talking about. And I would probably therefore talk about it by way of example and say, "Mm, let's start with a criminal jury. So it's got some elements of that, a citizen's jury, as one example of deliberative democracy, would start similarly in that we would have a civic lottery. We would randomly select people to be part of a citizen's jury. But it's very unlike a criminal jury in that people are able to interrogate any expert that appears, right? they've got to learn a great deal. So they've got to be interacting with witnesses, not sitting passively as you would with a criminal jury. 
They might have something equivalent to a judge in terms of a facilitator who might be just helping them work out where they want to go or just, you know, facilitating the process. And they would be given a question, not so much, are you guilty or not guilty? It would be a bit more open-ended than that. And they'd be asked to provide some recommendations to a decision maker. And that decision maker would have agreed in advance to take on board those recommendations. So I'd probably, you know, offer a case study and say, look, there's some really exciting developments worldwide. I could tell you about what's happening in Belgium or Ireland or whatever. Um, And yeah, I guess that's how I typically start. So you'd need a really long elevator ride is what you're saying. (laughs) Exactly. It would have to have a lot of floors, this elevator. It would need to go up to about 120, I think. You spend all day in the elevator telling people what you're you're up to. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Just keep closing the door until I finish the next paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But you you have a history as a, a politician and an academic researcher, and you've been doing a lot of work sort of on the ground with deliberative process and deliberative democracy, is there a story that you sort of use regularly that would kind of embody your whole area of interest in deliberative democracy? Is there one that you you go to, would go to routinely? Well, I'd probably start with the fact that I was an elected representative and then I'd say, and that taught me that that particular process, this was local government, by the way, that if you were to design the world's worst decision-making Methods you'd probably design local government in Australia. <laughs> and that that set me on the path of thinking about are there other ways of doing this? And I suppose it would depend where that person was coming from. Were they interested in people's, you know, in, in ways of improving trust in decision making? Are they interested in citizens' ability to do decision making? Are they interested in the legitimacy of those recommendations? You know, so much more, I think, would be the trigger for any story that I might tell. Right. So if they were, you know, thinking about trust, I might actually offer a Canadian example and say, well, let's think about the Citizens' Assembly in British Columbia and the way in which the people who voted in favour of that particular electoral reform did so because they had done their own research and looked at various ways of doing electoral reform, or they might have just decided that if, you know, more than 100 people had been working together for nearly a year to come up with the best method, that they actually trusted those people to offer a recommendation that they could support because there were people like them and so on. So I might offer that as a case study if I was thinking about trust If I was thinking about the way that people change their mind by the process, I might say, well, let's look at the Australian Citizens Parliament where we randomly selected 150 people from across Australia and some people came into that process, which was to look at how to strengthen Australia's political system to service better. They might have come in with a particular idea like first-past-the-post voting is is the fairest form of voting and that might be something they've argued for years and yet they participated in that process, they listened to experts, they had a chance to interrogate them and then they said, yeah, actually that isn't the fairest form at all, I was wrong and um, actually I really like, you know, preferential, proportional, whatever um, now that I've heard 
the various arguments. So as you can hear, it it just depends on what people are questioning as to what story I might tell in terms of, you know, uh, the strength of deliberative methods. Right. So have you always had that interest in, in democracy and in, well, even sort of that political decision-making connection? I don't know. I have a feeling that, um, you know, I was, I come from an impoverished background and I just have a feeling that that, that kind of sets you on a path that is about fairness and equality and, and so on. And those roots, I'm sure, were formative. But I would have to say that it wasn't until I started reading about, in particular, Demarchy, which was a method that was put forward by a philosopher at the University of Sydney, John Bernheim, and started thinking about Athenian democracy and that made me think, hang on, you know, the way we're doing elections the way we are formulating governance is not actually democratic. I think it just started me thinking about that. Now, that's not that long ago. I suppose it's about 30 years ago. And I think as soon as you start questioning the structures and so on, then you have to start looking around for, well, what are some alternatives? You know, what are some robust alternatives? And you know, a bunch of things came my way, but I must say that deliberative democracy started looking like the alternative that I considered was the most robust. And because I started researching in that field, I think that, you know, my election to local government, which was a bit accidental because I was supporting someone else to get elected, (laughs) it kind of, you know, and I was so miserable that I thought, having got elected, <laughs> I thought, gee, I might just do a PhD and analyse this because I'll, you know, I can double my misery levels. Really, I can be both an elected representative and embark on this crazy PhD, which was analysing that very thing. You know, could we actually make good decisions in local government? And that gave me an opportunity to start to really look deeply at at various methods and to try some of those methods in local government. And I think that was just formative. I think once I started trialling citizens' juries at a local government level and seeing how effective they were, I thought, okay, I have to keep going down this pathway. This is, this is fascinating. And I've been doing it ever since. So for nearly 30 years, I guess, I've been both designing deliberative methods, but also analysing them, evaluating them, writing about them, teaching about them. And, you know, after all of this time, I must say it excites me even more now than it did at the beginning. And so I figure I must be, in, you know, I must be in the right zone. You know, this is where I was meant to be. Yeah, you're on, you're on to something, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, you, I think you've already answered this because you kind of jumped to a question that came to mind as you were, as you were speaking, which was sort of what came first. It sounds like it was exploring the, the approach, the deliberative democracy as, as a concept. And then once you applied it, it sort of, it made it real for you. And that, and that really sort of, set things ablaze and got, got you really going on it. Is that, would that be a fair way to, to describe it? I'm not sure I was. Um, as you know, I've got my own podcast series called Facilitating Public Engagement or Facilitating Public Deliberations, actually. And I was 
interviewing someone recently who was a theorist and she was saying that she was particularly interested in democratic theory and then she came to the practice of deliberative democracy. And I have, I have a feeling I went the other way, that I started applying deliberative principles without even knowing that that's what I was doing. And while that was going on, I started looking at the theory. So I think I started with the practice first because I was in local government. And then because I was doing that PhD, I was kind of forced to look at theory and then could see an absolute match for what it was I was trying to do and what it was that the theorists were talking about. So they kind of came together. Does that make sense? It does. Are there pieces of deliberative process that that just come intuitively? Like I'm, I'm trying to, because I focus a lot on collaboration and I, I know that the two are sort of nested together, connected somehow. I'm wondering if the same thing can happen in a collaborative world where you sort of you're exploring the practice almost by default or intuitively perhaps and uncovering some of the the theory. Absolutely. And I, I agree with what you're saying because I think collaboration is something that is intuitive and I think it is something that I was practicing in this area where I live, which is, you know, a bit new age and hippies film. <laughs> and <laughs> collaboration is just, you know, it's second nature. But collaboration is a democratic virtue. So if you start looking at collaboration in relation to democratic theory, then it absolutely has a part. If you think of democracy as the pursuit of social cohesion, then collaboration is fundamental to that. You know, you can't create social cohesion through ongoing conflict, you you have to actually be able to collaborate in order to achieve that social cohesion. So because it's a democratic virtue, I think it does precede the theory of democracy, but it just fits, it's nested in the theory of democracy so sweetly, I think. Right. So then just to keep it simple and, and maybe clarify, how would you differentiate between collaboration or a collaborative process and deliberative democracy or a deliberative process? I think you can't do a deliberation without having people collaborate. And I tend not to use the language of collaboration. So let me come at this a slightly different way. I tend to differentiate between debate, dialogue, and deliberation. So. I think you could collaborate by having a debate, for example, where, you know, someone is going to win in a debate. We're going to argue it through and, and maybe one issue is going to rise to the top. I think you can collaborate in having a dialogue. I think it fits collaboration is a neater fit for a dialogue. So if, if I'm in dialogue, then I have to listen extremely well to the other person and vice versa. So we're already, I think, we're further down that pathway of collaboration because we are actually trying to understand each other and we might not be trying to, we might be exploring common ground, but not necessarily. But then as soon as we get into deliberation, we are pursuing consensus. We don't necessarily need to achieve it. But we are certainly exploring our common ground. We're trying to build common ground and say, well, we can agree on X. Can we not agree on Y? And if we absolutely can't, well, let's just park Y over there 
And let's just keep seeing how much agreement there is. Now, collaboration is just essential in order to keep exploring or building that common ground that we need in order to come up with some kind of group statement at the end of what we are doing. So I think there is a some kind of overlap with collaboration as soon as you do dialogue and it's fundamental to deliberation, but I'm not sure that it's a very neat fit for debate. I think that's the way I'd say it. But I think we're probably using different terms but with a, a very similar objective. Yes. And as you were sort of describing those, I was scratching down a couple of notes and, and it struck me that debate is a lot about contesting ideas. And collaboration isn't necessarily a tool that could work in that space, but it you could do that. Dialogue is more about understanding and, and of course deliberation is fully into the collaboration space, as you say, that pursuing consensus type approach. So I agree with how you're characterizing it. And is it then a matter of of the outcome? of how collaboration is a process that gets you to an end point and deliberation is process that gets you to an end point. Is the end point the key here? But it could be the intention as well, Scott, because you wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's associated with the end point anyway, isn't it? It's like you go in with an intention to get to a collective outcome and you can't get to that collective outcome without collaborating. And in deliberation, then it would be the collective outcome would be a decision. It would be a decision. And I think then then we're just talking about what tools, what methods would you use in order to get to that collective decision? And there were, I mean, the tools are all collaborative tools. Right. So if you were doing a collaboration, it would be the same as the tools you'd use for a deliberation. So, I mean, I, they could be synonyms, but it's just not language that I would necessarily used to describe what we're doing, but they could be synonyms. Have, have you found in, the, in your work in deliberative democracy that sometimes the words get in the way of the intent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and gosh, the, you know, the phrase deliberative democracy, I mean, I'm, I often say, well, people are not going to take to the streets saying, what do we want deliberative democracy? When do we want it now? You know, I mean, it's just, it's a terrible phrase, but Interestingly, people did take to the streets in the UK saying, what do we want? A citizens' assembly. You know, so they they might actually be arguing for one of the tools that are employed in that field of deliberative democracy, but not that, you know, that theoretical notion. Right. I know I found in, in the world of collaboration that people will use collaboration to mean many, many things. Yes. And it's almost broad it's just it's just a catchphrase yes because you could collaborate to do a a focus group or a poll or something and i'd think oh well that's a bit of a waste of time (laughs) but you could collaborate on it yeah and a lot of times it's about people wanting to demonstrate that they can fit in like i'm a i'm a collaborator but they're not using the word in sort of the in the sense that i would think of collaboration at least so yeah so you, in the deliberative work that you've done over the years and trialed and, and researched, you've obviously been doing a lot of collaboration, even though you're maybe not using those terms. Has there been a time when you've had a really huge, I want to call it a collaborative success, something that stood out 
I've had many, many successes. You know, I mean, I think that's why I'm so excited about the work that I do. And I mean, you you would know that I'm also involved in an international network, Democracy R&D, and that has people from all over the world who are doing the kind of work that we're doing at the New Democracy Foundation. And I think the list is, you know, it is a long list, you know, um, and sometimes I do feel like I'm I'm at the centre of the universe hearing all of these positive good news stories, but they are rarely out in the world and people are unaware of them because the media is so focused on conflict and, and not on collaboration or deliberation. They're not out in the world. So I guess if I start bragging about success, I don't know whether I would be bragging about a global success that was not mine, but we might have influenced, you know, Australian case studies may have influenced, for example, the Irish work and the Belgian work and and so on. But if I was talking exclusively about the work that we do, I would probably be saying, well, you know, we did this incredible citizen's jury uh, for Melbourne City Council where we had a civic lottery and a group of people came together and made recommendations about a 10-year, $4 billion budget. And this is very unusual, by the way, the entire budget for a city council. And then the council implemented those recommendations. And that was very exciting for us because participatory budgeting has been happening throughout the world that started in South America, but it's usually just a portion of a budget. It's not an entire budget. So that was a fantastic success. And I might even say, but it's not just about, you know, budgets. We were asked to design a process for another council in Victoria, Geelong, and the state government asked us to, again, have a civic lottery, bring a larger group together and have them design the kind of local government democracy that they would like to experience. Now, I don't know that anyone's ever done that in the world. So that was pretty exciting. And that group made, you know, made 13 recommendations. And I think the state government implemented 11 of those 13 recommendations. So you would usually, you know, when you talk about success, you'd want to couch it in, well, look, things changed. And and that is definitely true of the Irish citizens' assemblies because you know, one of them culminated in a referendum that changed the law in terms of marriage equality and, um, you know, a bunch of other things in Ireland. So, I mean, there's just really exciting stuff going on worldwide and it's difficult to know what would be uppermost if you were talking about a success story, but there have been many. So is there, across those examples, there is there a, I'm going to say a common precursor. So in in each case, there was a a request, it sounds like, from a local government, for instance, in the budget deliberations. And so they have to be willing to go into this deliberative space and willing to take what they get from a jury. How do you get councils or leaders to that headspace where it's, it's okay to ask citizens? Yeah, I mean, you pointed to I think there are three ideals in the work that we do. And the first is that you need to have a representative sample of people to do a deliberation. And that's why we use the civic lottery, because we want to get a cross-section of the community 
I think you need to have enough time for people to learn a great deal and interrogate experts and so on, and that's the deliberative component. And the third ideal is the one that you're pointing to, which is often the most difficult to secure, and that is that it has to be influential, that a decision maker has to be prepared to take it on board. So we do a lot of work up front. I mean, often it's the decision maker comes to us and says, you know, I might be, they might be in a pickle. They don't have enough money. They've got to make some very hard decisions. And actually it makes sense to go out to the wider community and say, well, help us prioritize. Because if we say X, then you're all going to argue against us and say, no, no, the sky will fall in. Um, so it actually helps a decision maker in a lot of circumstances. I mean, the Irish example is again one. I mean, they, they kind of knew that the population saw the abortion laws as anachronistic. So, you know, why not? But it, you know, you can, you can work with, you can be in partnership with a, with your population by drawing on a cross section of them and having them work with you on change. So often they will come to us, but often we would be going to them or New Democracy would and saying, have you thought about doing this in relation to that? But that's going to require a bit of work. I mean, we usually do a, we conduct a workshop with the decision makers beforehand so that we are all on the same page, you know, that we do fully understand here's what you're embarking on and this is the agreement that you're going to make with these people that you are either going to act on their recommendations or you're going to state publicly why you're not going to act on those recommendations. And you better have a pretty good reason for not doing so. And that's fine. I mean, people will definitely want to be part of a public deliberation if they've got that kind of guarantee that it's going to be taken very seriously by the decision maker. So it's a, you know, it's a two-way contract really that people have got to participate fully in a, in a mini public, take it seriously, do the work that has to be done in order to make some very solid recommendations. And, and the decision makers have to say, well, we're willing to honour the work that you put into this because we know you're going to be operating with the best interests of the wider community in mind and we will act on it or we'll tell you why. So often they'll come together at the end as well and there'll be a presentation to those decision makers and here are our recommendations and here's why we think they are right. So, you know, it's a fairly collaborative, to use your language, it's a fairly collaborative process that a collaboration at the beginning and at the end and a deliberation in the middle. And I suppose that's another way we could think about talking about those two terms. Right. How does the the random selection play into sort of the full the whole operation? And is there is there something that a collaborative space can learn from the deliberative portion in terms of its how it's made up? I think so. Yeah. I, you see, the reason that a civic lottery, a, a randomly selected group, where you've got this incredible diversity in the room, why that works is because these people don't know each other. Whereas if you're doing a collaboration, you may be working with an interest group or people who know each other and they've got fairly fixed views about how things should proceed and it may become more like mediation at that point, you know, conflict resolution or whatever. But if you've had a civic lottery, then you've got a group of people who've come into the room not knowing each other 
knowing that they have different viewpoints and we honour that and say, look, you, you know, you're all coming at this from different perspectives and we want that. You know, we want to hear from your diversity of views. And we also know, of course, that the research is telling us more and more that it is a diverse group that is able to come to better recommendations than an expert group, you know, that a, a diverse sample is probably going to trump the, the recommendations that come out of an expert group every time because they, they go into it rigidly. And I, I often offer an example of this. We had a, we had a process called the 2020 Summit that was um, put together by the Australian Prime Minister and he brought together experts in the field and some, you know, citizens, but mostly expert specialists and he drew together a thousand people and there were a hundred in, in 10 different streams. And I was selected for the governance stream. And that at the same time, we were convening the Australian citizens, citizens parliament where we had 150 randomly selected people. So I was able to watch that process. And I also had a chance to participate in this expert process. And, you know, I would, <laughs> I would favor that randomly selected group every time over the expert group because we were all caucusing and trying to get our idea up front, including me. You know, I'd been involved in deliberative democracy for a long time and I thought that was the answer. But those other 100 experts all had their own ideas about the way forward and we were all just arguing for them. Just It was more of a debate. We're trying to win. Whereas that group of 150 randomly selected they were just saying, oh, this is interesting. You know, let's listen to everyone and see if we can work out what's the best way forward. Completely different approach, much more creative. You know, the naive questioner is, is so effective amongst a group. You know, in 150, you're going to get people who know a great deal and you're also going to get people who know nothing and therefore will start saying, but why would you say that? And it's always a joy to see the the person who is so certain having to say, hmm, I don't know, I've always thought that. Let me just, you know, deconstruct that a little bit. You know, um, it, it's got a different energy. So, yes, a collaboration against a, with a diverse group is a completely different experience to a collaboration with people who know each other and, and are arguing for their viewpoint. So you also mentioned that, um, you know, deliberation takes you have to give it enough time to to bear fruit and collaborations the same way. Is there an argument to be made though that, well, I guess the argument that I've heard often is that it takes too long. You know, we, we need, you know, we need answers now and by gosh, it's, this isn't going to go fast enough. We can't afford to spend months figuring this out. Have you, have you encountered that kind of a sentiment and is there a way that you kind of navigate that? We just keep insisting on it. We say it's absolutely fundamental that they need time, that you can't expect people to learn a great deal and to deeply deliberate in a short time because if you do, you're going to end up with the kind of results that you get from an opinion poll or a focus group and it'll be top-of-the-head opinion-seeking and that what we're doing is completely different. So we're, we're trying to, to argue for, for something which is not public opinion but is public judgment. And we sometimes argue, well, let's think about 
let's use that criminal jury analogy. So you've just been, you're about to be prosecuted on a murder charge. We could just do an opinion poll and ask a whole bunch of people what they think, whether you're guilty or innocent, or would you prefer that we had, you know, 30, 40 people listening to all of the evidence, listening to all of the arguments, and then deciding whether or not you're guilty. And I'm pretty sure you'd go with the public judgment rather than the public opinion. And I don't know why a policy on health or education or would be any different. You know, don't we want people to consider the whole spectrum, all of the arguments to ensure that we get a good outcome because we know that right now in the political environment, well, speed is the enemy of, you know, considered good judgment. That That's part of the problem. We're getting this knee-jerk reaction to a public outcry, for example, and most elected representatives don't want to do that, but they're kind of forced into that knee-jerk reaction. So we are the opposite of a knee-jerk reaction. By the way, I, I think I would also say that it's not just the amount of time that people take, it's when they deliberate is important. So you don't want people to deliberate when a speedy decision needs to be made. You want them to deliberate quite early in the life of a topic so that they may be talking about, you know, a policy, for example. Well, it shouldn't be at the point where urgency is fundamental. It should be at a point where there is the time to establish whatever, you know, a policy or uh, so timeliness is is something that you really do need to take into account. Is there, out of all of the things that we've we, we've touched on a few pieces, and I can see it, you know, a couple other areas we could we could probably spend another half an hour or so talking about, but in the, the whole sort of suite of things that we've talked about, whether it's the collaborative sort of aspects or the deliberative aspects, is there sort of one thing that you would point to that people should be aware of that that is kind of the the big learning from these processes? Yeah, I think the biggest learning for me in the last little while has been something that I think I was I was less aware of at the start, though I, I think I was at some subconscious level, and that is the notion of critical thinking. And I think it's because I see so little of it now in the political landscape, and I realise how much of it is evident in a mini public. And for that reason, we produced a whole lot of materials that we now use. So if we were convening, say, a citizen's jury or a citizen's assembly, we would first take those randomly selected people through a kind of skills exercise to say, we're not actually very good at thinking critically. You know, we, we've got our cognitive biases, our unconscious biases, and, and so do the people that you're going to hear from, by the way. This expert's going to come in with his or her own bias. And you need to be able to interrogate expert knowledge in a way that you maybe don't usually. And we want to teach you how to do that. You know, So people often leave a mini public saying, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to watch the news in the same way again. You know, I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm interrogating stuff in a way that I hadn't before. Now, I just think if that was the only outcome that came out of 
and many public, well, heck, that'll do me. I mean, of course, we want a whole lot more, but I think the world is is really in need of some good critical thinking right now. And I think it is something that is fundamental to a deliberative method. And that makes, by the way, that makes it sound super serious. And I think people not only come out of it saying, well, you know, I've now developed the skills of critical thinking and I've never had such a respectful and amazing conversation with a group of strangers before, but they also have a really good time. You know, they have a lot of fun and there's a lot of laughter and it's quite creative at times as well. Um, You know, it's it's not all serious. They know that it's serious work and that it's going to be taken seriously, but as you would know from doing any kind of collaboration, it is fun. You know, people have a really good time getting to know each other and then trying to understand where each other is coming from and how you can explore common ground and then build common ground and then make recommendations. It's, um, yeah, it's fantastic. But I think that critical thinking component is becoming more and more important in deliberative democracy circles. You certainly can't put a group of people together and have them work effectively without without their personalities coming out. And, and there's always the, the smart ass in the group that's going to make some crack about something. And, and next thing you know, the entire group is laying on the floor laughing. So it's, <laughs> you, you just can't, uh, you can't have a group that doesn't sort of get into that fun space at some point. So I'm kind of curious, you know, just to end up our, our podcast with a couple of sort of quick fire kinds of questions. If you were going to suggest a book that everyone should read or a book that maybe you're reading right now, what would you suggest? Well, golly, the book I'm reading right now, I'm finding absolutely fascinating, but it's got nothing to do with deliberative democracy. It's, um, <laughs> but it's brilliant. It's a war for eternity by Benjamin Tatelbaum. And it's all about traditionalism and populism. And I mean, if anyone has an interest in, the big picture political landscape, it's an amazing book. But the, the book in relation to deliberative democracy, I'd probably say David Van Raybrook, his book Against Elections is definitely worth reading. It's, it's kind of the book, I wrote a book with Brian Martin called Random Selection in Politics, but David's book I think is, well, it's more recent and it's, I think he just does a really fine job of arguing a very similar case. So that'd be the book I'd recommend. Excellent. Do you have a favorite quote? Uh, look, I don't, but there's something, it's, it's more generic than a quote, but there's something for me about being the change that, that you want to see, um, you know, kind of living the principles that you are arguing for, that sort of thing. Um, there's something about the authentic self that intrigues me, you know, that you can't just... I see it a lot in, in activist circles. I see activists who, who are not very nice to be around <laughs> arguing for collaboration or deliberation. And I think, why aren't you practicing the very principles that you're espousing here? You know, so yeah, there's something for me about that generic authenticity that is important. Excellent. And then the last one, my last question. I would be if when you think about the word successful, is there is there one person that comes to mind? At the moment, I think it's Jacinta Ardern, you know, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. If I was thinking about a well-known person, just because 
she just is doing such a good job of of making decisions but in a way that is taking everyone into account and you know she is the she is the opposite of the kind of strong man leadership that we're seeing everywhere right but if i think of successful really there's there's so many collaborators of mine and friends of mine that i think are are really authentic people and for me that success just is, is so much more important than anyone who might be in the public gaze. You know, I, I just want to say, to, to wrap up, to say thank you for your, your time and your insights today into all, well, all the things deliberative and all the, the connections to the collaborative world. I, I've quite enjoyed the conversation today, so thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. What a great conversation with Carson. I have to say that I'm keenly interested in deliberative process and deliberative democracy. So this conversation with Carson was a real treat. If there was something I wanted to highlight from our conversation today, it would be that this process where citizens are brought together to deliberate on a decision seems so much closer to what I think of as democracy. I had to smile when Carson suggested that if a public opinion poll was not sufficient to fairly hear the evidence and the arguments in a criminal decision, why would a decision regarding public policy be any different? While we talked about the nuanced differences between deliberative and collaborative process, it feels to me like deliberation is what collaboration wants to be when it grows up. I appreciate Carson taking the time today to walk through some of the concepts of deliberative democracy and some of her insights into how it works Thanks, Carson, and thanks everyone for listening. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating. Collaborating.